So welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Ashana Kasesnov. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to have Marissa Peer back with us. For those of you who missed her last interview, you can look it up. It's episode 15. Um, there we talked a lot about the rules of the mind and how all of this pertains particularly to health of the mind and the body. One subject that we touched upon um, in that last podcast was I am enough, and that's Marissa's mantra. And I really wanted to go back and revisit this topic. And um, coincidentally or fortuitously, Marissa is just about to bring out a book of exactly that topic. So the fates were aligned and we've gotten back together again to talk about this super, super important subject. So, of course, Marissa, let me just briefly introduce you for the people who don't know you. Marissa has spent nearly three decades um, treating a client list of people as a therapist that includes international superstars, CEOs, royalty and Olympic athletes. She's an author, a celebrated speaker and a teacher. Amongst her many articles and media appearances, she has authored many books. And this first, fifth book, I Am Enough, will re- be released very soon. And as I said, that's going to be the main topic of our conversation today. So, Marissa, the main question is, of course, why now? Um, you've written a book on confidence and now I Am Enough, which is sort of a bit similar, but an extension of that theme. What, what was the impetus to bring this book out at this particular time? Well, having been a therapist for 30 years, which seems a lifetime, it is a lifetime, I realized very, very early in my career that I could almost divide my clients into categories. And the biggest category of what was wrong with them is that they didn't feel enough. And so that I may have been working with a movie star or a singer or somebody who was immensely wealthy but needed more wealth or immensely successful but needed more success or had a property but wanted a second one and then a third one. And it's a kind of, in in America they call it, what do they call it, excessive sickness, which doesn't mean you're excessively sick, it means you need more. But of course, and a lot of people are going to be treated for this excessive sickness. Why do I need more? I'm a compulsive shopper, I'm a compulsive hoarder, I'm a binger, I'm an alcoholic, Um, I'm a drug addict. But of course... What lies beneath needing more is something very interesting. You have The only reason you need more is because you feel less. And when you don't feel that you're enough, you will always need more. In fact, as long as you think you're not enough, there isn't enough stuff in the world that's going to fill that emptiness because it's not a real emptiness. It's an emotional void. So you could eat tons of food, drink lots of alcohol, you could gamble, you could take drugs, you could shop until you dropped, you could have a house packed to the rafters with stuff. But as long as you feel you are not enough, it's never going to fill the gap. And the opposite of that is that when you know you're enough, you actually don't need more. And it isn't just more stuff. People who need compliments and praise. Am I good enough? Did you like that? Are you sure? Did I really look okay? Did I really do okay? So I love what lies beneath. It's one of the key phrases I use when I train therapists to don't look for the symptom and certainly don't treat the symptom. Look for what lies beneath and treat that. Because when you treat what lies beneath, you treat everything, you fix everything, you transform, and you cure your clients, even though some countries do not like the word cure. I would say, yes, I can cure bedwetting, I can cure stuff, I can cure smoking, drinking, binging, and I can cure the modern day sickness of not feeling enough. And because it is what lies beneath all our dissatisfaction, it seemed the right time to write a book called I Am Enough so that anyone looking think, oh, right, could that help me? And, of course, some people will say, do you know what, that's me. I know that's me. I recognize. Others will say, you know, I'm not sure it's me, but certainly could be me. And believe me, if you think you're not enough, you're in very good company. George Michael, Marilyn Monroe, Princess Diana, Amy Winehouse, Whitney Houston, Heath Ledger, all of these brilliant, talented people who just didn't ever feel that they were enough. And it's important to first understand why and secondly to stop it. You know, you can't heal what you don't feel and you certainly cannot heal what you don't understand. And all of our medicine 
is healing symptoms when really you need to understand what's causing it and get rid of it really effectively. And that is what this book, I'm Enough, guarantees to do. Right. There's an extraordinarily uh, noticeable increase in, in the number of cases of depression, of anxiety. Just recently, we had the suicide of people like Kate Spade. Um, it does seem to be an absolute epidemic. Do you have any um, ideas why that is the case? Why is modern living so dangerous for us? Because modern living tells us that if we get lots of products, we'll be okay. And then modern living says, well, you are a product and you need to be a product with a, a six pack and a flat stomach and a perfect waist and a designer wardrobe and shiny, glossy hair. So we've been really sold a lie that you know, what we look like, what we own, what we accumulate is who we are. When in fact, your weight is not who you are. Your shape and size, your years are not who you are. Your job description is not you. But if you came to live in the West from Mars, you'd think it certainly was you. And, you know, I spend a lot of time in Africa with people, particularly in Zimbabwe, who who have nothing. And yet they don't have the level of depression we have because... If you ask them what makes them happy, they say the land, the soil, the earth, the sun, the beach, the sand, the sunsets, the light, the dark, the people. We know without question that what makes us happy are our relationships with other people. But in the West, when you're bought into this, I need to work a lot and get a great salary and then buy a nice house and then buy a nice car. And to do that, I'm going to shut myself away. And all my friends are on Facebook, but I don't see them. And I'm going to live in a little studio on my own. It's going to cost me so much to buy this apartment that I never have time to enjoy it because I'm always working just to pay for it. So we tell people that stuff makes them happy, acquisitions make us happy, when the truth is our relationship with people make us happy. And once you start to pursue money at at the expense of everything else, including your relationships with people, You know, one of my clients who's very famous is saying, I said to my kid, what is wrong with you? I've given you everything, everything, everything. You have a private education. You've got your own mini cab account. You've got your own credit card. I've given you everything. And he stopped me and said, except a dad. And that's the thing I would, I didn't ask for that. So if I wanted you to be in the house, you're never there. And so, you know, we, we do that with children. We're always working to buy stuff. And I was guilty of that years ago when I was writing my first book. I was to my little girl who was then seven. You know, darling, when I finish this book, we're going to have all these things. She goes, Mommy, I don't want those. I just want my mummy back. And I thought, gosh, I'm so glad she's honest enough to tell me. Because I was writing so much at the weekend and expecting her to read, watch TV. I'd buy her comics and stuff to entertain her. But she didn't want that. She wanted my time. And, of course, I can never get those years back. So we are more depressed than ever before because we are isolating ourselves more and more and more. We have 24-hour TV with Amazon. We never have to put in a store ever again. We don't speak to the checker operator because it's a machine. We don't speak to the bank teller because it's a machine. We don't speak to the guy in the train station because it's a machine. And we are setting people up for so many problems because we're taking away the thing that makes us feel good, which is our connections and interactions with other people. I'll give you a good example. One of my friends said to me, I don't see my daughter, but I read her a story online twice a week because I'm all over the world. And he thought that was just as good as sitting next. I said, but when can you cuddle her, hold her hand or stroke her hair? That's not good enough. Imagine you had a girlfriend who said, I can't have dinner with you. I'll sit at my computer, you sit at yours and we'll eat the same dinner and pretend it's a date. No woman would put up with that. But your poor little girl doesn't have a choice. And, you know, it's a great shame what we're doing to people. with this pressure to be perfect. And the, the side effect of that is that we're becoming so much more alone than we ever were. So you you actually raise a couple of really interesting points there. Um, One thing that springs to mind is um, I I can actually hear a whole load of women listening to this who are working mums, who are trying to sort of do their best to provide everything for their family and now suffering the hugest guilt trip because they've, you know, recognizing they're not spending 
that quality time with their kids. So, I mean, that's another pressure in itself. So how, how do we manage these sorts of situations? Well, it's you have to go back and think if you were on a date, they wouldn't accept quality time. They want quantity time and your children are no different. And I was a single parent and I recognized how hard it is to do it. Well, I was very lucky that as a therapist, I could work around at the school hours I could even work around her sleeping hours. So I was very privileged, but a lot of women aren't. It's very difficult. But when you have finished work and you then have time with your kids, forget about what your house looks like. Forget about ironing. Spend that time you have with your children. And if you have to do the laundry and the dishes, do it with them. Cook together. Make the laundry exciting. Sort it together. Make it a chore. Um, I used to have to occasionally do it as my little girl pretend she was my second. She'd sit next to me. I get little stickers to put on things. And really, she wasn't helpful at all. But she felt she was helping. And I'd call her my PA and I'd give her a little envelope with her salary in it. And it, I just got to include her in what I do. But children don't mind helping with chores if you make it fun. You can make peeling vegetables and making soup. You can make all of that stuff fun. Um, we used to have to play Ready, Steady, Cook. My daughter loved that too. But the problem is that when we finished our work time, we do have downtime. What we do, we get involved in chores and cleaning and laundry and shopping. And you can do that with your children. Take them with you. Get them involved. It's, it's not a bad thing for them to learn how to do stuff. And you can make it enjoyable, but don't leave them and then go straight from work to chores so you just don't see them until that last hour before bedtime or you're sitting around the table and, and everyone's on their phone or their screen. That's not good. In fact, that's really bad. Right. And, of course, you know, to be a good parent, you, you have to be happy with who you are as a person yourself. So this I am enough story, it goes back generation for generation. You know, you, you behave like your mom and your mom behaved like your grandmother and so on and so forth. So we want to break that cycle. So you've talked in the past before about how important these childhood years are. But, you know, now if you're thinking about somebody who's a parent who has their own issues, that's exactly where your book can come in to really help them. So what's your what's your roadmap? Where's the place you start with with somebody? You know, where's the first place somebody can look and find out if this book is something for them, if if I am enough is something that's going to really help their lives? Because I suspect a lot of people, as you said at the beginning, are not really even aware of this themselves. They just know stuff isn't working in their lives, but they don't know that that's the reason. Well, a lot of us walk around and say, I don't know what's wrong with me. I guess I'm just damaged. I guess I'm just messed up. Because if you don't know what's wrong with you, how could you possibly fix it? And GPs, bless them, I've got five minutes to listen to you and, and their job is to really dish out painkillers or send you for tests. Their job isn't to listen to you talking about what happened in your childhood and why you become a binge eater because you always felt unlovable. So the problem is that when we're children, if we don't feel we matter, if we don't feel we're significant, if we somehow get the message we're not enough, We'll try, the mind will always go back to what made us feel good, usually eating creamy, milky, sugary, pappy foods. When you're little and you're not getting attention, but you get bottle or breast milk, suddenly all your needs are met. And the mind links that to, oh, when I get fed, I feel, I feel significant, I get attention, I matter. And they have an epidemic of people who, when they're unhappy, they eat pizza or macaroni and cheese or ice cream or candy. They never eat vegetable soup or a bit of wilted spinach because the mind is always going back to what made me feel good the first time I felt I didn't matter. And, of course, it is food, followed by buying stuff because many parents say, I'm really busy, but here's a comic, here's a puzzle, here's um, a cutout doll or something. And so we, we learn what we live. And now we've got a generation of people who don't know what, how to even feel their feelings. They know how to eat them, swallow them, hide them away, buy stuff, or get totally lost in TV because that was the babies when we were children. And I would say that everybody will benefit from that book because it shows you where you got this from. You see, when you walk around saying, I don't know what's wrong with me, I guess I'm just messed up. 
you're missing the truth. There isn't a baby on the planet born who thinks they're not enough. In fact, we often say that baby is running the house. They wake when they want to wake. They feed when they want to feed. They don't think, mm, my dad works nights. I shouldn't wake up the house. My mum spent a lot of money on that organic avocado. I shouldn't regurgitate it. They don't think that at all. So the very good news is no one is born believing they're not enough. However, it's very easy to get people to buy into this belief that they're not enough. And once they buy into it, it's very hard to get rid of it on your own. You see, when you're a child, the truth is you know that your survival is linked to your parents' liking. If you work out they're inadequate, alcoholics, not up to the job, mentally ill, depressed, sad, lonely, rejected, abandoned, it's terrifying because you depend on them. It's far easier to think this is my fault. My mom's always crying because I don't make her happy. My dad's never there because I'm not a good enough kid. My mom's always shouting, if I got straight A grades, then they would be happy. And so the child tries to be more to make the parent happier. It can't work because it was never the child's fault. But now that child becomes an adult on a quest to always be better, always get more because they don't feel enough. And so the idea of that book is to help all the adults that suffer with that I'm not enoughness, but also to help all our future clients coming in. So as a parent, one of the best things you can do for your children is to make them believe they're enough. If every child went to school and had this little thought in their head, I matter, I'm significant, I'm enough, they wouldn't get bullied and they wouldn't be bullies. They would achieve more. You know, we all want to change the world, but that's a big ask. But if you could influence, say, 10 children in your lifetime to go to school saying, I matter, I'm significant, I'm enough, they would influence other children and, and you would be able to make a dent in bullying and in unhappiness. And that's how you change the world. You change people, one heart, one soul at a time. And we can all make a difference. I mean, if one person, one child breathed on the planet because of you, if one child had a better life because of you, then your life now has massive meaning and massive purpose. But what if you could do that to 500 children by getting your child's school teacher to pick up the message of I'm enough, by getting your child's scout teacher or brownie teacher or ballet teacher to pick it up? What if you could pass it on to other friends with children who pass it on to their children? You could then... When your time on the planet ended, so I did something amazing and I have meaning and purpose. Yeah, meaning and purpose is a very important issue. And I actually suspect that that's a lot of what precipitates the awareness that we're not enough is, is people, a lot of people just seem to stumble through life and don't find that sense of purpose. Those two things seem to me to be inextricably linked. Can you comment then- on that? Parents, that I was reading something the other day, and he said, when I told my dad I wanted to be an actor, he said, no, darling, you pronounce it doctor. <laughs> the lovely guy from goodness gracious me and my great, the greatest one I grew, the unforgotten. He said, I want to be an actor, but they said doctor. And I became, I trained with it, so I hated it. Then I went back to acting. But you see, we very rarely say to our children, what makes your heart sing? What is your calling? What activities make you feel so good about yourself? Because in there is what you're meant to do. What you are meant to do lies directly behind and is connected to what you love to do. But very often we say, you know, you're going to be an act, a, a doctor, you're going to be an accountant, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a barrister. We kind of coerce our children what we want them to be. And what we should be saying is, look, I don't mind if you're a gardener, as long as you do what you love and it makes you happy. If you want to run an animal shelter, then you do that. One of my friends, her daughter's always been a dancer. She doesn't get paid well, but she loves it. And she doesn't have that great pay, but she has something else, which is she does what she loves. It makes her heart sing. And I have many clients whose children have gone straight into the city and Within 10 years, they're burnt out. They're just up at five, home at 10, living out of um, vending machines and takeouts. And 
in the winter, they don't even see the outside of their house at all just for money. It's like that expression that says we spend all our, our healthy years pursuing money and then we spend all that money trying to get back our health. What a waste. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that immediately makes, makes that quote spring to mind that, you know, the people on their deathbed, nobody, yeah. ever, nobody ever says they wish they'd work more. They always talk about yeah. they wish they'd have better personal relationships. Yeah. 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 So one thing you were talking about right at the very beginning is also in the in the introduction to your book is this idea of sort of like three types of clients that you have. And, and that expands a little bit on that idea. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I have three types of clients I, because I always go for what lies beneath. So unlike many therapists who when the client comes in, they get a shopping list of, oh, this one needs to work on bulimia and self-esteem and motivation and self-sabotage. I don't do that. When clients give me a shopping list, I straight away, my eye would immediately narrow down to one of three things. And I teach all my therapists that I train on my rapid transformation rapid transformational therapy training to go and look one of those three things. The first is I'm not enough. People come in with multiple addictions and multiple issues. It's because they don't feel enough. The second group have an interesting belief, which is I'm different. And because I'm different, I just can't connect. You see, it's wired into our DNA to not be different. It's wired into our DNA to conform because that made us safe. But we live in multicultural societies now where we can't say, well, look, I'm the same because I look the same and act the same and feel the same. And many people find being different is the bane of their lives because our greatest need, bar none, is to be connected. And you might go, no, our greatest need is to be fed. Yeah, but when you're connected, you get fed. If you're not connected to your mother, you're not going to get fed. If you're at a lion and the Serengeti and the lioness won't connect you, you're not going to get fed. So we are born with a powerful need to be connected because it says if I'm connected, I'll survive. If I'm connected, I will make it until I can look after myself. And so when people feel different, they fear they're disconnected. And it's incredibly scary because we used to burn people at the stake for being different. We used to cast them out, banish them, maroon them, ostracize them. And so it is wired into our DNA to fear being different. But here's an interesting thing. If you asked everyone in the audience, any one of your readers to put up their hand now if they feel different, you'll find that 90% would. And there is an interesting thing. The very fact that you feel different and fear being different means you are the same as everyone and everyone is the same as you. But when you think you're different, you make a belief I'm different. Then the belief makes you I'm different, so I can't connect. So I won't even try to connect. And now your behavior and your action is I'm not going to talk to people. I'm not going to put myself out there because I'm different, so I can't connect. And when you change that to actually everyone has that fear and if I have that fear, I must be the same as everyone. And everyone is the same as me. And of course, I can connect because we're all the same. Then you start to feel connected. So our fear of being different makes us very fragile, very vulnerable. But it's a fear that, that had a value when we lived in tribes, when we lived in walled cities, when safety became from numbers only, it was varied. And now it's not valid. It's totally outdated. It's totally redundant. But it feels so relevant. But it's just a feeling. And with my book, I'm Enough, I show you how to get rid of that feeling forever. The third category is very interesting. And it's people who come along and say, I want this, but I know I can't have it. I want love but I know I'm unlovable. I want to be healthy, but my mother, my grandmother had the depressive gene. My sister had it. So what they're saying is I want to be free of depression, but I know it's not available to me. I want to find love. I know it's not available. My dad left. Every boyfriend my mama had left. My first husband left. I want success, but I don't have a university degree, so I know that's not available. We'll try telling that to Mark Zuckerberg or Oprah Winfrey. And so we have these fixed beliefs. They, they used to be thoughts, fleeting thoughts. They became 
fixed beliefs and they run our behavior. In the Bible, it says man is what he believes. It should say, but guess what? You can change those beliefs like that if you know how. And so I wanted to write a book, a really compelling transformational book that would change people's beliefs in a moment. Because I see so many self-help books. They all have a good intention, of course. Nobody writes a book without wanting to help people, but they make it work. Write out a thousand goals, write out these plans, make this huge art project, um, read more books, ring people up. It's like, oh my God, if you have a, a home, a child, a business, you've got enough work, you don't need any more. And I've always been very driven and keen to give people things that change and that take three minutes, and that require no work at all. And so that book, I'm Enough, is packed full of real workable things that change you in a nanosecond. People will say, wow, you know, somebody wrote me a beautiful book, a beautiful letter, sorry, not a book. Some people do write me practically novels on how grateful they are. And she said, you know, I'm 70 and I've been unhappy my whole life and I never knew why until I read that book. And then everything changed. Someone else wrote to me and said, you know, I was reading that book and I had a flashback to being eight and opening the fridge. And if I eat all the food in this fridge and get really, really big, my brother won't hit me. She said, I never realized why I was a compulsive eater. My brother, I don't see him. We live in different continents, but I still open the fridge and eat everything in it. But the day I read your book was the day that stopped. It's like I had a new voice in my head going, this isn't you and you don't need that. So what I'm enough does very effectively is to change the voice in your head. You know, we think other people influence, they do, but it's our own voice, our own look at you, who's going to want you, what's the point of dieting, you're always going to be fat, don't ask for a pay rise, you probably get fired or laughed at. And we have a limiting voice, and that voice should be a cheerleader going, yay, you can do anything, this has got your name all over it. Because children have a cheerleader that says, you want to get that banana in your mouth? Keep going. You doesn't go, look, here's a banana. It's in your hair, it's in your ear, and it's on your T-shirt. Just give up trying to feed yourself. You can't do it. It doesn't say, look, you seem to fall over every time you try to stand up. Just give up and crawl your entire life. Babies have a chill again. Keep going. You can do anything. And that voice goes away and gets replaced by a critic going, don't do that, don't ask for that, don't try that. And when you get rid of that voice, oh, my God, it's amazing. Because I had that voice. When I got my first book deal, I gave it back. I was so worried they wouldn't like my book, that it would get bad reviews or no reviews or wouldn't sell, or that I'd have to shut myself away for months to write it, that I didn't do it now. I love writing books and it wouldn't occur to me that somebody wouldn't like them. And that isn't because I'm arrogant. It's because I've actually, because Marissa, this is the most amazing book ever. That isn't necessarily true, but it's what gets me to write it, publish it and talk to you about it without any fear of being rejected, which I used to have big time. That's wonderful. That that actually reminds me of, of a client of mine um, fairly recently who, who said that she had such trouble um, surviving in this world with her own set of not enoughness because the world was made for extroverts and people who were super successful. And if you didn't fit into that category, then you might as well just not bother. Now, obviously, I didn't take that as a no when we went on and had a really great session. But I think that's a really interesting point. And I hadn't actually thought about it until she raised it. So how do you view that? Does everybody have to become a raving extrovert? Or can you still be enough and actually be an introvert? How does that work? You can be an extrovert. Some of the most successful people, you know, I'm great friends with a guy called Eric Edmonds, who's a wonderful speaker, who told me he's an introvert. You'd never know it to see him on stage. He's a remarkable man and a dear friend. But there are many people who are successful who are introverts. We, Adele, for instance, she's very funny, but, you know, she said left her own devices. She doesn't want publicity. She, No one's ever seen her wedding pictures. She doesn't sell pictures of her son to Hello magazine. She isn't running around in the latest Burberry um, clothes showing off. Uh, 
it's not about an introvert or an extrovert. It's about being happy with who you are. It's about honoring yourself. And some people don't want the limelight. Some do. I teach people how to be leaders, natural leaders. And some people have no desire to ever be a leader. And you see, we can't all be the same. We shouldn't be the same. We're supposed to be different. It's our differences that make us so interesting and, and compelling. And it's nothing to do with being an extrovert. This is what it's to do with. The most important words you'll ever hear are the words you say to yourself. And you can quietly say, I'm enough. I matter. I have something of such value to offer. You know, John Thor, who I adored, was an introvert. He didn't like publicity. He loved going on set and filming Inspector Morse. And he liked going home with his lovely wife, Sheila, to their beautiful home in Chiswick. And he didn't want to have wild parties. He wasn't out clubbing. There are many people out there, even rock stars. Some of them actually, when they come off stage, they go home. And if you saw that video of Whitney um, called Can I Just Be Me, you saw the damage of having to feel like you've got to be a party person. She should have come off stage, had a massage and gone to bed. But she couldn't. She had to perform, to entertain. Marilyn Monroe was the same. But you see, what lies beneath there is a belief of I'm not enough and I've got to entertain people. Robin Williams was at a fundraiser in the audience. He had to go on stage and start presenting. It was so inappropriate. He wasn't booked to be on stage. He totally overshadowed people who were, but he could never just sit at a table and be in the audience. He couldn't receive, he could only transmit. And so there's a lot of benefits to going, I, I don't need any of that. I don't need to be on stage getting praise. I'm Because I praise myself. If the most important words I'll ever hear are my words, I can say, I'm great, I'm amazing, I've got a good heart, I'm a good person, I like myself. And then I don't need other people to say it because if other people have to say that for you to feel good, now you become needy. And it's not about being arrogant, yeah, I'm the greatest me, I'm phenomenal, I'm awesome, I'm the best goddess in the whole world. It's not about that because... No one needs to hear that. It's about, I matter. I'm significant. I have a place on this planet. I have something of immense value to offer. And that's a wonderful thing. And I'm trying to think of the guy, guy that won Fame Academy. And even Rick Astley, they, they have several recordings. So I, don't, I don't want to be a pop star. I, I want to go. It's like the guy from Blur. I think, is it? Duncan James, who's got his cheese farm. Many people who have become famous say, actually, this isn't what I want. I want a farm. I want a house in the country with cats and dogs. I want to ride horses. I'm really not interested in, in being on show. Because if everyone tells you you're amazing and you don't, it goes right over your head. If a million people say, you're so great, you're so great, you're so great, which I'm sure they did. In fact, I know they did say that to Amy Winehouse and George Michael. If the one voice saying no is your voice, then all the other voices are meaningless because the most important words and the most important opinion are your own. And I'm enough shows you how to make those words sink in like lotion on dry skin and have an impact in the same way that if your skin is dry and you put on lotion, it nourishes your skin. If you are emotionally empty and you fill yourself up with the right words, you, they, they really nourish you in the most wonderful way. Wonderful. In the book, you also talk a lot about people who have cracked the nut and have managed to be successful and feel whole and enough. And you talk about some of the tricks and tips. Could you could you let us have a couple of them before the book comes out? Yeah, not tricks, but I understand what you the techniques and methods that absolutely work. So people who are very, very successful have extraordinary self-belief. Muhammad Ali always said, I told myself I was the greatest before I knew I was. Then I became the greatest. When Meryl Streep went to audition for the part in King Kong that was given to Jessica, I've forgotten her surname, but Jessica, Jessica. Um, the director said to her, you're not attractive. You'll never make it in this town. Go away, pick another job because you're not beautiful. And she said to him, 
as one opinion in a sea of opinions, I'll just go and get another opinion. And she went off to more auditions and she got cast. And, of course, now she's in Mamma Mia!, and if you ever saw her in Out of Africa with Robert Redford, you would never say she was not beautiful. That scene where he's washing her hair, she just looks gorgeous. But it's not about being beautiful. It's about Meryl saying, I could allow this one person's opinion to send me home and to never audition again, or I could say my opinion matters. I love acting. It's what I'm called to do. Whoopi Goldberg was told that no little black kid from the project is ever going to be an actress. She was. Danny DeVito, too. So it's not what people say, it's what you say. You can be defeated by other people's words or you can say, I don't do no. When Naomi Campbell was told, look, black girls don't get on the cover of Vogue, the door is shut, she I'll kick it open. And I love that, that. Who would have thought that Barack Obama could be the president of America? You know, things are changing in a way that they didn't change. Uh, 50 years ago, no African-American would see being the president of America and now this our generation are realizing that the glass ceiling is in your head and you can smash that glass into smithereens because there is no limit. The limit is in your imagination. That's actually very good news because you can go into your imagination and take away that limit, remove that limit. The belief that you know uh, I'm I'm handicapped, well this wonderful girl who's married to Rupert Friend, Rupert Friend from Homeland. His wife, I think her name is Amy Mullins, but she doesn't have legs. She's a para-Olympic athlete. There's another girl who's now doing all the adverts for Gap called Grace something, and she has terrible vitiligo, or I shouldn't say terrible, because actually she looks stunningly beautiful. So all the things that we would have once said would hold us back, they no longer hold us back. You can be anything, do anything, achieve anything, but you must have self-belief. One, an expression I made up, you know, I still love other people's quotes. It's quite funny that now people quote me, but one of the quotes I'm quite known for is this, belief without talent will take you further than talent without belief. But when you have both, you are unstoppable. So it's great to have talent, but you also need to have phenomenal self-belief. And then you can do anything and be anything. One might say perhaps that a certain president has a lot of self-belief. Um, how do you... How do Not you a lot of talent. Yeah, true, granted. Um, how, how do you find that... Yeah, Believe but how do you find that, that dividing line between, um, you know, yeah, absolutely, I totally agree. One, it's a lot of belief, but but where is that fine dividing line between arrogance, narcissism, and self-belief? Because it's, cause it's, so a, it's, it's a rocky road. Yeah, here's the line. At one end is um, being absolutely selfish and ruthless and putting yourself first. And at the other end is being an absolute martyr and putting yourself last. And right in the middle is where you want to be. And it's called honoring yourself, honoring your talents, your beliefs. And when you can do that, then your life becomes amazing. So, for instance, let's look at Adele. You know, Adele is not skinny. And she was her birth father abandoned her. She lived with her mother with very little money. And then she got rejected by a guy she loved. And she could have gone away and thought, you know, my dad left, my boyfriend left, what am I? But she didn't. She wrote beautiful songs. Never mind, I'll find someone like you. I'll set fire to the rain. She wrote those two albums. Sam Smith, when he was rejected, wrote In the Lonely Hour. And when he got his first, was it a movie? He said, I want to thank the guy who dumped me because he gave me all this material. So it, it's a choice, really. You see, we can't choose what happens to us, but we can always choose how we feel about it. When we choose how we feel about it, we minimize that happening again. So you may get rejected and dumped by your first boyfriend, your first girlfriend. You may get fired from your first job. That's something that's happened. But how you feel about it is down to you. You can't change what happened but you can change how you feel about it. You can go, oh, my God, this guy broke my heart and trampled all over it, and I'll never fall in love again. And you can go, look, well, he just got bored. He grew out of me. 
And that was sad, but everything he loved in me is still in me, and the next guy will love me more, the next girl. So we get to choose how to feel about events, but what we can't choose is what happens when we go the negative route. I'm not lovable. This always happens to me. Everything always goes wrong. Nothing ever works out. I'm just a loser. That's a luxury to say those words because it has such a negative effect on your body. I'm sure if you went to Catherine Zeta-Jones at Catherine, I know that you were rejected by John Leslie and Angus McFadden, your first two boyfriends dumped you and broke your heart and you went off to America to get over the pain of being rejected and then met Michael Douglas and became Hollywood royalty. Would you go back and rewrite it? You'd go, absolutely not. That rejection was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I can say, in my instance, being rejected, being kicked out of college when I was so close to getting my degree as a school teacher was the best thing. If I could go back, I'd kiss those teachers' feet that kicked me out because it sent me on a different path. I hadn't chosen that path, but I'm so glad I was fired, rejected, and dumped. I'm so glad my first boyfriend dumped me because it just set me on a better path. But it's very easy to go, I've been rejected and it hurt. It does hurt, but it doesn't kill you. It used to. And sometimes it really can be the best thing that ever happened And when you can see that, you then become bulletproof. You no longer get rejected. You get to laugh about things that people say that are mean. You can't stop it, but you can choose your reaction. I actually give you a very good example. I have a lot of um, talks on YouTube, and one of them's got one and a half million posts, and one's got 1.2 million. People write me and go, I love those talks. I notice that one woman, whose name is Julia, seems to me to go on there and say all the time, this is a man in drag. I don't know why she does the need to say that. She's obviously a very unhappy person. And I could um, respond and go, hey, I'm not a man in drag. Why do you keep saying that? What's wrong with you? I could be really mean and go, look, you're obviously a pathetic person. Or I could be very kind and go, hey, Julia, I'm so sorry or so unhappy that you need to do this. But I've never let that in. I know I'm not a man in drag. I can actually tell you about it because it doesn't pain me. It doesn't hurt me. I find it in some ways mildly amusing. But she can't hurt me unless I let her. And I just don't have to let her. Nobody can reject you without your consent. Nobody can make you feel inferior or inadequate or not good enough unless you agree with everything they're saying. And you have the freedom not to do that. And really, this should be taught in schools. All children should be taught how to not let in rejection. I'm actually just working even today on my anti-bullying program that's going into the entire school system in time for anti-bullying week in November because we can all make a difference to everybody's lives if we just help them deal with rejection, deal with negative thinking, deal with limiting beliefs and understand that there is no limit. The sky is the limit, but there is no glass ceiling. Right. When somebody experiences those kind of things, though, I mean, I've I've had a situation where I've had to really explain to to clients that it's not about suppressing emotions, because sometimes somebody will just press your buttons. It's just a question of, you know, being able to recognize it so that you just don't stay in that negative space for so long. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because suppressing emotions is also really not a good thing. And our society seems to kind of encourage that because we're actually not encouraged to express either anger or joy. Your emotions are the most real thing that you have. Your feelings are the most real thing you have. And your feelings need to be felt. Your feelings are like a classroom of children going, notice me, notice me, notice me. When you push your feelings away, they actually regroup. Then they come back stronger than ever. And we're all taught to push our feelings down. That's where this thing about buying stuff. I feel bad. Let me go on eBay or Amazon. I feel bad. Let me eat. Let me drink. Let me put on the TV. So we're taught to swallow our feelings and we particularly swallow our hurt and it becomes anger. It becomes rage and outrage is really just rage coming out. And I do tell you in this book, I'm enough how to deal with your hurt because 
people who are very sorted, very evolved, very together express their hurt. They would say if they met, hey, Julia, I noticed you keep posing, I'm a man in drag. I'm actually a little bit hurtful. I don't really know why you would do that. What's going on with you? But they wouldn't go to bed and think, yeah, why is Julia hurting me? What have I done to her? What's wrong with her? How dare she? Let me imagine some fantasy when I really put her down and diminish her and put her in her place. Because to do that, you have to let it in. And so expressing hurt is really about being able to say, well, I felt hurt when you did that. Your behavior was hurtful. You never go, you made me feel, because nobody can make you feel anything. Only your interpretation can make you feel. You made me feel. You made me do. It's your fault I started smoking again. You've ruined my evenings, and I'm going to eat lots of cake. No, you say, oh, I feel hurt by their behavior. I feel hurt by my sister-in-law or my boss or my friend or my partner. And when you say I feel hurt, the feelings go, oh, you recognize me. My job's done. I can go away. So if I could give you a great thing to do, it would be when you're hurt, when someone hurts your feelings, especially if you're at work or it's your mother-in-law, Shut yourself in the bathroom, flush the toilet, run the taps, muffle the sound and say out loud, that just hurt my feelings. I was hurt by Julia saying I'm a transvestite. I was hurt by um, my mother saying that I'm stupid. I was hurt by my husband forgetting my birthday. And then the feeling, I promise you, goes away. And it stops what I call looping thoughts where we do this thing about no one loves me. That's the thought. Now, the feeling I get from that is I feel helpless and hopeless. I feel so bad. And now the behavior. So first I have to think a thought. The thought is I'm not enough. Now the feeling is, because I think I'm not enough, is I feel helpless. I actually feel a little bit angry. I feel a bit pissed off, actually, because I'm not enough. Now I've got to have a behavior because it's thought. The behavior is I'm not going to talk to people. I'll never speak to people at work. I'll never ask anyone out to put on an event at my house. They wouldn't come anyway. And since no one likes me because I'm not enough, I'm just going to not make connections. Now I'm all alone, and now I'm just justifying that thought, which is I'm not enough. It's like a ladder. It's a loop. Imagine you turned that around and said, I am enough. I'm enough. I'm enough. I've always been enough. I will always be enough. I'm not my weight, shape, size, body, job. These are just things. I am enough. That's the thought. What's the feeling you get? Well, I feel kind of good about myself. Actually, I feel very good. If I keep saying I'm enough, I have to feel good about myself, of course. Now, what's the behavior that's going to come from thinking that thought and having that? Well, I can go up to this guy I like and say, you want to have a coffee with me? Or, hey, I've got tickets to um, the cinema. Do you want to come? I can invite people over. I can talk to complete strangers on the train because I know I'm enough. And most of them talk back. And if one of them doesn't and looks to be a bit weird, I know that he doesn't think he's enough. It's not about me. And now I've gone in a good loop. The fact that I can talk to people is because I know I'm enough. So we have these looping thoughts. Everything starts with a thought. You know that song by Errol Flynn? It started with a kiss. I never knew it would end like this, but it didn't. To kiss that girl, you had to have a thought. This, I'm going to go and kiss that girl. And she's going to like it. Because a lot of people thought, I'm not going to kiss anyone because they weren't. I think I've got bad breath. <laughs> so every action starts with a thought. Here's the fantastic news. You can change your thoughts and make them incredible and phenomenal and awesome. And if you want to know how, buy that book, I'm Enough, because it's all in there. And it will be the best investment you ever made in your whole life. Absolutely. What are some of the techniques that you um, use in the book? Is uh, Do you have um, uh, your hypnosis audios to support the, the techniques? There's a lot of different techniques. The book is rather like having a session with me. When I work with clients, I have certain techniques that I know will turn them around and make them be the person they want to be. It's like being a dentist, a detective. The detective works out what's wrong. The dentist extracts all the pain and then just like Humpty Dumpty, you get put back together again, only way, way, way better. 
And so there are many techniques in the book for uncovering your limiting beliefs and changing them. And it would take me quite a while to explain what they are, but some of the best things you can do is it teaches you how to not let in destructive criticism. It teaches you how to deal with people who want to reject you. It shows you how to feel good about it. It actually shows you how to improve your relationship with money, how to improve your relationship. It even shows you how to improve your sex life. It shows you how to have a better body. So the key issues we all want to work on, my relationship with money, my relationship with my partner, my kids, my friends, my family, my health, um, my well-being, my mental health. This is a program that covers every key area and systematically it's like building bricks, but you can do it all in a weekend. It puts everything back because really it reactivates what you were born with, tremendous self-belief, phenomenal inner confidence, incredible um, sense of self-worth and meaning and purpose, and, of course, the icing on the cake, knowing that you're enough. Because many people do something, they say, I'm a goddess, I'm a goddess, I'm a rock star, but the mind knows you're not a goddess, it knows you're not a rock star, you're not living in a mansion in Beverly Hills, you don't have millions of dollars in your bank, you're not a rock star. Men don't like run down the street with bunches of flowers when you come out your front door, so perhaps you're not a goddess. But when you say I'm enough, it's strength, is it's simplicity, your mind will never argue with the truth. Because you are enough. Every person listen to this, you are enough. You always have been. You always will be. For the rest of your long, joyful life, you know that you're enough. And that is what will make your life long and joyful. Because when you know you're enough, you'll think, well, if I know I'm enough, wouldn't I just lie on the couch eating potato chips? No. When you know you're enough, You'll ask for more. You'll be able to say at the hospital, actually, I'm not happy with this level of treatment. I want a second opinion. Actually, you know, I've been in this job for six years. I've done all this research and I'm ready for promotion or a pay rise. You'll say to your partner, you know, I don't appreciate being spoken to like that because I'm simply not acceptable. I deserve better. And it's a wonderful feeling because we all show people how to treat us. We show people how far to push us. And when you elevate your own sense of self-worth, it's not arrogance. It's actually incredibly sexy. We love confident self-assured because they make us feel safe. So why not be confident and self-assured and make everyone feel safe, including yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. The method of hypnosis really kind of like helps get these these changes of thinking really permanently wired in the brain i was just recently um interviewed dr dr mike merzenich who is the the father of neuroplasticity and actually showed how capable the brain is of changing so just to sort of like you know for those people who are unfamiliar with the work this this is this is not kind of airy fairy fluffy stuff it's it's actually really all grounded in in very hard rigorous science you know we used to think the brain was rigid but the brain is very plastic the brain is very capable of rewiring and refiring and every behavior you have will establish a neuron a neuron will become like a super highway like a freeway a three-lane freeway going through your mind but you see you can make those old highways become redundant and you can build new neurons and so one of the ways you build neurons is by repeated powerful words so If you said, I'm phenomenal, I'm incredible, I'm amazing at public speaking, or I'm phenomenal, incredible, amazing, and talented at fundraising, if you said it enough, not only would you believe it, you'd make a neuron that would start to fire every time you thought that thought. The problem is that we can have negative neurons just as much as well. If you've got a loser, I've got a memory like a sieve, and I can't do anything, then you'll make a very powerful neuron. It starts like a little thread. It becomes a cable. It becomes a super highway. The good news is that you can get unhelpful neurons to unravel and powerful neurons to fire off. And if you want to see this in action, go to YouTube and just put in Marissa Peer and Angie, and you can see me working with a girl with cerebral palsy. And the right side of her brain is not as big as the left. And I'm actually commanding her brain to catch up, to fire off neurons that make the 
less active side of her body catch up with the active side. And it works. It works immediately. There's a neurosurgeon on stage with me. Sounds like mumbo jumbo. But we know now that even issues like diabetes, even issues like uh, tooth decay, poor eyesight, poor hearing can be dramatically changed by using neuroplasticity to communicate with the body because the strongest force in every human being in the world is this. The words you use and the thoughts you think form a blueprint and your mind does everything at its disposal to make that blueprint real. And so the good news is you can choose to think better thoughts and it sounds so simple, it is, and I'm enough, actually shows you how to make the blueprint for your life, how to make these fantastic neurons that make you bulletproof to rejection, why you for success and achievement and love and health and happiness and well-being, because that is our natural state, but we've got so far away from it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then he says himself that, you know, that, that, the difference between childhood and adulthood is that if you you can engage this brain plasticity if it matters and that i think fits in so beautifully with what you say that you know these positive you know, no one is teaching us instead of teaching our children their times table I and mean, that's kind of useful we should be having children chant every day in classes i'm enough i matter i'm significant <laughs> I'm a lot more useful I've got unique skills. And there are some parents who do that, who make extraordinary children. But every child, if every teacher could have the children begin their lesson saying, I matter, I'm good, I'm smart, I have something of value to offer. I'm not better than anyone, but no one is better than me. I'm significant. I'm I'm here for a reason. I've got something of value to offer the world. If every child said that, and repeated it and believed it, our world would be such a different place. And that's my mission, and that's why I wrote I'm Enough, to get parents to do it with their children. People, It's never too late. If you start doing that in your 60s, it would dramatically change your life. It's never too late to believe in yourself and to show the rest of the world that you're worth believing in, because that's true. That's a wonderful note. To, to wind up and finish on and everybody should rush out and get Marissa's book when is it actually going to be available Marissa? I think it's out in about a month's time uh, go on to my website marissapeer.com we're just playing with a cover and it's ready to go hot off the presses very very soon certainly within a month great and so everybody right. get out there well I'll, I'll put the links to Marissa's Thank website so on the bottom of the podcast notes so you can always go and look and of course if anybody's interested in becoming um, an RGT therapist the, the links to all of that are on Marissa's site highly recommended I've done it myself changed my yes, life you, you trained you trained in RTT with me absolutely didn't you? I was one of, one of the, the fairly early groups I think so absolutely yeah. totally changed my life and I've been very fortunate in helping other people's lives change too and uh, thank you for that Marissa thank you for the book and thank you for coming on and talking to me about it I welcome and I shall come back again soon oh anytime you're always more than welcome Thank you, darling. Sending everyone much love. See you soon. Take care. Take care. So, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that second episode with Marissa as much as I did, and that we've now really begun to understand how important this whole idea of I am enough really is to all of us. It's so central to our emotional well-being, our physical well-being, our spiritual well-being. I think we also learned how vitally important it is that we pass this information on to the next generation, started them out really, really at the beginning, teach our children that they are enough and that they matter. And also that it's never too late. It's never too late for any of us to be able to really positively change our lives and our state of mental and physical health just by changing the way that we think. However, you may be one of those people who are struggling to overcome certain issues and certain blocks by yourself. And if you feel that you would be much better served by having another person help you on this journey, then please go over to Marissa's site. There's a link there to all of the worldwide RTT qualified 
therapists that you can contact. Many of them work either in person or over the internet. I mean, there are so many people there that you can contact, find somebody who can really help you because they are absolutely expertly trained to do precisely that. Many of them I know personally, close friends and colleagues, and I couldn't recommend them more highly. And so, dear listeners, until next week, please rate, review us on iTunes, tell all your friends about us. And also, we're now available on Spotify. So if you have a Spotify account, please look in the podcast section and you'll find us there if that's an easier way to reach us every week. In addition, please, if you would like to have extended podcast notes so that you don't have to listen to each episode with a pencil and paper and be worried about missing something, let each week's episode with extended podcast notes drop comfortably into your mailbox on a Friday morning. And you can do that by becoming a London Heel Insider over at londonheel.com. And so, dear listeners, until next week, wishing you, as always, health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>